welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast that celebrates female creativity and storytelling. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and this week I'm joined by the writer Alice Vincent to discuss Alice's memoir, Rootbound, which is a beautiful exploration of the restorative qualities of nature. Reeling from an unexpected breakup, Alice found herself increasingly drawn to planting up pots on her urban balcony and to exploring the wider world of horticulture, engaging in community gardening projects near her home in London, researching the history of women and plants, and plotting travel abroad around botanic gardens to visit. As Alice gained greater knowledge in nurturing and growing plants, she also began to question what a life well lived meant to her, beyond the many trappings of the millennial generation. Rootbound takes the reader month by month through a year in which Alice gardened herself out of heartbreak, found new love and embraced independence. It's a wonderful read for anyone who finds solace in the natural world, And I had such a fun time chatting to Alice about her growing love for horticulture and the research that went into her book. Let's get started with the show. Hello, Alice. Thank you so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Not at all. It's very nice to be here. Well, I really enjoyed your memoir, Rootbound. So I've been really looking forward to talking about the book. Um... I love gardens, although I can't say that I'm a gardener. (laughs) So your book just really appealed to me uh, from the get-go. And you show in the book that you've always sort of loved nature, that it was a kind of backdrop to much of your life. But Mm -hmm. when did you really start gardening in earnest? When did you actually realize this was a passion for you? Um, I think, well, I probably, I started gardening possibly not in earnest, but I started kind of my adventure with plants, I always think of happening in around 2014, about May, so almost exactly six years ago. Um, And that was because I got a balcony that uh, had an amazing view of London and it was just a concrete box. And so I wanted to grow things on it. It kind of felt like an extension of doing other sorts of homemaking I suppose in the flat that was attached to the balcony Um, but it took a long time for those seeds to germinate and for me to realize that as you say that gardening and nature had kind of been this quiet rhythm to all of my life but quiet being the operative word it wasn't something that was immediately apparent and um, it was very much in my mid-20s and after certain life events that I became properly obsessed with it. So somewhere in the last five years, really. I found it was interesting. You were almost slightly ashamed at the beginning to sort of admit that you were a gardener or interested in gardening. Right. But it has actually become quite a millennial thing, Mm. not gardening perhaps itself, but certainly having houseplants and things like that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Why has it become so trendy? I think it's a combination of things, Um, the kind of the broad, if you kind of zoomed out and you were to plot a chart of when uh, generations became fascinated with houseplants, you would kind of see it starting in maybe the kind of the 18th century, um, if you watched... 
the Olivia Coleman film where she plays Queen Anne, the favourite. So they talk then oh, yeah. about pineapples growing in glass houses. And so, you know, that that's a similar kind of, there was a fascination of growing things under glass then, and then it popped up again in the Victorian era, it popped up again in the 1950s and the 70s, and now it's doing it now. So part of it is a trend thing. But more fundamentally than that is that I believe that millennials are the they're the last generation to grow up without the internet and they're the first generation to grow up with it. And that means that we have been, and as I kind of explained in the beginning of the book, like we've been brought up against technology. We watched Tomorrow's World. Windows 98 was kind of carved into our childhood, like Game Boys and mobile phones. And we grew up wanting things faster and more zippy and more swipe and more touchscreen. And we've got to a point where we realise that we're detached from nature and that we need we need it. I mean, scientists have long proven that we need to engage with nature for our well-being. And so we've started to find it ourselves. Against all of that, there's the sense that we want to know better where our food is coming from. So people have started to grow it. And there's a huge interiors trend uh, that's been around for the past five years where houseplants look aesthetically pleasing and they're fashionable. But I think it's mostly that we we are hungry to connect with plants. Yes, I think that's so true. And I love how you write in the book that we're almost harking back to the sort of arts and crafts movement of the early 20th century. And of course, William Morris was such a huge figure in that. And he very much was inspired by nature, as was his daughter, May Morris, in the sorts of designs that they created. And I think that's really happening today. And also this interest in artisanal crafts. And I thought that was just such an interesting point that you made. Oh, thank you. Yes, I found it. There are lots of kind of tiny little light bulb moments throughout researching and thinking about the book. I don't know if other people you've spoken to have said this, but I always think that the challenge of writing is not in the physical, getting the words on the page, but in the thought and the thinking, which often is far more elusive and takes a lot longer, is far more slippery as a process. But um, I'd always kind of thought about arts and craft, what we were witnessing. And yeah, as you say, it's kind of the shift of ceramics suddenly becoming very fashionable. It's people wanting to make things. Um, That already nods to the arts and crafts movement. But when I started to look into it, there were all sorts of other similarities as well. There's the fact that the arts and crafts movement were very revolutionary in saying that they could be multidiscipline. So you could be a gardener and an actor and a dress designer, which even now is, is considered a uniquely millennial slashy generation phenomenon and it's not it's not and people are still quite judgmental about oh millennials with their side hustles it's like well why can't you be a music journalist and a gardener simultaneously why do we make people sit in boxes Mm. so I did yeah that is really interesting how did you sort of piece the memoir together because on the one hand it is a very personal account of a particular moment in your life when you went through a breakup Mm. and you really turned to nature and turned to gardening in particular to get over that but it also is such an interesting examination of the sort of wider picture of women and gardening and gardening and culture um which did you sort of start out with first or did it just all come together um it 
it kind of all came together. The book works in this way because I think it's probably a fairly accurate explanation of how I see plants and why they're important to me and how I connect with them, which is through the stories and the histories that they represent. So, I mean, I'm talking to you now as I look out at my balcony and I can see all sorts of various things which are grown because they look beautiful, but also the plants that were chosen in the book to lead me also had connections. I'm looking at anemones, which are a plant that my grandmother loved. And I didn't know my grandmother, but I knew that she loved anemones. And um, and so for me, I can't look at them without thinking about her. And also what anemones are, like they are these tiny, delicate little woodland flowers that emerge when we are in the stormiest part of the year. So they're actually really hardcore as plants, you know, and, and most, all of the plants in our lives have fascinating histories. You know, if you took a plant and examined its history, you'd find a tiny microcosm of exploration and colonialism and trade and conquest and war and gender politics, all wrapped up in a tiny seed or a tiny flower. And that for me was kind of magical. And I wanted to unravel those stories and just because it's the way that I like to grow things. And it's not like I sat down and I was like, I'm going to pick a plant that does this. So I started with the plants that I had grown and then went into their histories and realized that they bumped into all sorts of other things that were important to me. Mm. And you seem to really find your own freedom, your own sense of freedom through your balcony and through your plants. And you also write about the freedom that women before you have found through gardening. Would you tell me a little bit more about that and why women have often got such a sense of freedom from interacting with plants and with and with nature? I think women have had a interact, you know, gained that sense of freedom for the same reason that any living thing gains that sense of freedom. Like we like being outside; it's good for us. The difference being is that there's never throughout history we've never questioned it if a man wants to go and live in a hut uh, like Thoreau did, even though he made his mum bring him sandwiches. Um, like we, we, you know, Walden uh, Thoreau's Walden is kind of upheld as this masterpiece of writing about masculinity and ecology and nature and identity and isolation um and actually there are lots of other (laughs) there are you know women tried to do this at the same time victorian teenagers in fact were really into going and finding ferns and um and studying plants as well but they were kind of seen as silly for it um so we've liked to be outside because everyone likes to be outside, but the difference is, is that we've not been given the same treatment in history. And as a result, the women who have managed to uh, kind of subvert social expectation and go and become plant hunters or become botanical illustrators and artists and preserve plants that no longer exist in real life in pictorial history um, – Oh, us. We we owe a huge debt to them because they were naturalists. They were important, and um, their their stories are just not told. So, uh, a book that I read that was very useful for this was Gardening Women by Catherine Horwood, uh, which details the role women have played in horticulture and plant history since the seventeenth century, and. And there's just so many of them. There are so many women who 
have done fascinating, interesting things from from plant hunting and bringing species over to the botanical gardens in England and to our domestic gardens, to women who gardened for salvation when they were grieving or when they were brokenhearted, um, to women who nurtured their own sense of maternity through the soil, and all the way up to, to the present day. I mean, there's still a huge gender gulf in terms of garden design and who gets awards at Chelsea. Um, so this is still a gardening is still a feminist issue, much like everything else in the world. Well, I love though how you told some of these women's stories through your book, and yeah, I found it so interesting about that craze for collecting and drawing ferns yeah. that women had in Victorian times. And yes, you feel like so much of that charm must have just been out—you know—the ability to get outside unchaperoned, you of know, course. because ferns were considered so safe for some reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though often they. Come Kind of, there are instances of women falling to their deaths fern hunting, you know. And every time, you know, when I kind of when I retell those stories or I think about those stories, I'm reminded of those horrific news stories that come up when it's like an influencer fell off a cliff because she's oh, trying yeah. to get a selfie. It's, you know, yeah. but there were so many connections. You know, the fact that you know capturing these ferns and taking them back was a would gain you social cachet, much the same as a nice photo of your holiday on Instagram will get you likes. Like we've been using nature in similar ways, both for salvation and also for social uh, benefits for, for centuries. Our generation is just the latest one to grasp onto nature as a benefit to our lives. Mm. Another thing I love about your book is how seasonal it is. I mean, it really takes the reader through a whole year, month by month. And as our conversation today is going to go live in April, I know you've chosen a little passage from the April chapter to share with you and tattle listeners today. So would you mind reading that extract? I will give it a go, yes. Regardless of what light turmoil had inhabited the day's events, I would retreat to the balcony after them. The mornings had become bright and empty, light by 6am even before the clocks went back. And while it was still cold out there, I loved these precious minutes, the feel of the skin on my arms pricking in the chill of it, to hold on to the air of a city where most were still asleep, to take a moment when it felt that the only things in it moving were me and the plants, became a silent ritual with which I started the day. The stretching hours let me find release there in the evening too, and this became essential after a fortnight filled with stops and starts and errands to run, reams of life admin too dull and alien even to moan about, but which nonetheless filled my brain and hours and left them stuffy. And while the warmth of earliest spring had faded, snow smothered the north of the country, left London bruising with cold. The dregs of it and the ramped up winds meant the window boxes needing daily watering for the first time in six months. It gave me reason to go through the motions out there, fill up the watering can from the kitchen sink, take in a lungful of grubby air, check on the new shoots. Even that did me more good than just collapsing on the sofa, sodden with weariness. I gardened myself better. And there was plenty growing. Prepared gardeners ones keen for movement and action, get ahead with what they can in the last weeks of winter. But by April, the gardens have caught up. Buds start to bloom, 
Seeds germinate into lengthening stems that push through the soil that has kept them incubated. After months of steadily gathering energy below the earth, the plants subject themselves to the elements beyond it. They feel the pelt of shower and the gaze of sun, turn towards it in hunger and fascination. In the community gardens, the tulip bulbs I'd thrown in January ground, cold like a last chance saloon, were beginning to flourish in a happy hodgepodge of colour. Early April held both winter's remnants and the promises of spring. The violas, their leggy winter growth recently chopped, were starting to bloom again. Those white cyclamen that had survived since October without their fleshy leaves turning to mush in the rain were throwing final salutations in their soil-destined petals. One brave hyacinth still stood where its fellow bulbs had bloomed and, after drunkenly lumbering over the side of the trough, turned small and brown. I left their leaves to shrivel and turn yellow as spring warmed up. They would stay green for weeks yet, still photosynthesising, gathering sunlight and feeding the bulb below to bloom next year. Against this swan song, an acrusis, the tight buds of ranunculus and camellia, both white, both gorgeous, pushed out and into the layers of petals. They looked unfathomably glamorous against the grey of the floor. Oh, that was lovely. Thank you. Um, your balcony sounds like such a haven and it must be even more so now when everyone is going outside so much less and mm. social distancing. Right. It is. I feel so enormously grateful for it. I really do. I, I mean, it was never going to be a question of whether there was going to be a balcony. Um, as happens in the, in fact, later on in that chapter, um, I find the balcony that I live with now. And um, it was a real challenge to find somewhere to live that I could afford that had some outdoor space, privileged as I am to be able to live by myself. And I just, I, I, I really just can't cope in somewhere that doesn't have access to even the tiniest bit of green space. So, yes, well, I'm sure you're just loving it even more <laughs> at the moment, and I certainly envy you that. But your memoir really describes, as you said in that little extract, you gardened yourself better. The book starts with you having this um, sort of horrible, unexpected breakup. And then through the course of a year, you recover from that and you sort of find new love. What was it about being made so unhappy that also seemed to be the sort of catalyst to you really seizing hold of your love for gardening and really throwing yourself into that? Was that just the sort of, did that feel like the most anchoring thing you could do at that time? Yeah, it did. That's a really good way of putting it. It wasn't, and I think I say this in the book, it wasn't like I suddenly had this determination that I was like, God, I'm so heartbroken and confused. I'm going to garden. It just became something that was like a compulsion. It just made more sense. Yes, I had gone through a breakup, but also other things in my life were really confusing. Like I wasn't sure if I wanted to do the job I was doing anymore. I didn't know where I was going to live. There were all sorts of things that I had been doing valiantly to achieve what I was told was a version of happiness I should want. And none of them were making me happy. So there was, there was a lot of stuff that I was questioning. And amidst all of it, I tried a, a lot of different things. 
but gardening was the one constant. And when I say gardening, I think people might interpret that as constantly digging or sowing or pruning. And But actually, it was more a case of getting engaged with nature. So I'd hunt town, London's green spaces, and I'd engage with the balcony when I could, but I'd also community garden, and I'd talk to people about plants, and I'd write about plants. And it was a sort of a full body immersion into the natural world and into horticulture Mm. that I previously only dabbled with. And I was just, I wanted to devour more of it. Yeah. And I found it so interesting how you wrote about these sort of social expectations um, that you felt are really placed on the millennial generation, perhaps in particular, you know, to have like the perfect job, home, partners, Instagram worthy holidays. Mm. And your breakup um, with your boyfriend at that time really seemed to force you to look at your life, you know, beneath this glossy surface. Mm. What did you really learn about yourself and what living a happy life actually looks like for you? I think it was that th- there was a lot of happiness in my life before the breakup. Like, let me put this like, I'm very privileged. I'm very fortunate to have certain things. Um, I was doing all right, but I think what was happening is that I was also masking a lot of my own dissatisfaction, which was frankly a lot of loneliness, um, a lot of creative um, kind of constraint, a lot of fear and a lack of self-esteem. And I was masking that by doing things that I thought I should be doing, like taking nice holidays and um, buying fancy furniture and eating avocado on toast. Like these things sound so cliche and it's not like I don't do these things now, but the difference is, is that I don't rely on them for happiness anymore. It's, it's funny that, um, the kind of the COVID-19 crisis has, um, has meant that a holiday that I'd been kind of looking forward to for a couple of years has been cancelled. And initially that was disappointing, but what's happened as a result is that I get to sit and look at my balcony all day and sleep quite a lot and read things. And actually that's pretty much what I was after. Um, yeah. <laughs> like it's not the holiday we'd planned for and it's obviously concerning in a number of ways, but I think what I'd realised was that an awful lot of the trappings of what we are suggested that we need in our lives are just that they're trappings. And actually Mm -hmm. I can gain grounding and a sense of contentment from far simpler things. Yes. And something that I really empathized with that you wrote about in the book was that how you'd generally been a person who, you know, liked having a plan and you did struggle with uncertainty. Mm. And um, this breakup meant that you no longer had those roots. You know, you didn't have uh, your home in the same way anymore. You were moving constantly Mm -hmm. um, from place to place. And you were, (laughs) to, you know, excuse the pun, but you were very much uprooted. Yeah, And you had to learn to... um, really grapple with uncertainty Mm -hmm. 
what did that teach you about how to deal with the unexpected? Like I know so many people are grappling with that mm-hmm. right now. We don't really know what's going to happen and sort of everything has changed. Mm-hmm. What lessons do you feel you've learned in dealing with uncertainty better? Well, you know, uh, a kind of heartbreak is is a very different kettle of fish from a, a global pandemic in which people are dying. But um I do get your point. I do think uh, that maybe previous me would have been far more upset about not being able to go on holiday and being like potentially cooped up in a house for three months a lot worse. Um, I think it's not so much that in many ways I have become a lot less uptight. I think some of that's growing up. Like I accept that I don't have control over everything and often that's usually quite a good thing. But also it's not so much that I've learnt to cope better with uncertainty, but that I know how better to calm myself down. And so I'm finding both a a very bittersweet irony in the fact that all of this is happening while spring is waking up outside um, Mm. because the days are lengthening, the weather is heating up. I'm literally looking at tiny green buds emerging on the trees outside the flat as we talk. And this is the time when we should be going outside and relishing, you know, the earth waking Mm. up. But on the flip side, the fact that that is still happening anyway is enormously heartening and consoling. Mm. And that in three months, we have no idea what the world is going to look like. But I can tell you that, you know, the seeds I'm going to sow this weekend will be be big enough for me to eat salad with like there are certain things that I find really deeply reassuring that just remind us that the world turns regardless Mm, yeah I find that very reassuring too I can at least still see all the trees you know blossoming from my window and that definitely brightens up every morning for me right now but your book particularly examines urban gardens mm-hmm. obviously because you live in london mm-hmm. but are you ever tempted to move outside of london or do you find you in some ways especially appreciate nature when it's in the city um the latter for real yeah i mean um i grew up in the countryside and i've always been quite outspoken on the fact that i wouldn't move back there And that's not some kind of adolescent rebellion. It's just it's a place that doesn't suit me very well uh, for a number of reasons. But I also think that nature in the city has a kind of a defiant strength to it. You've got to work pretty hard as a natural thing to exist in this concrete nightmare at times. Um, But that makes it all the more beautiful for me. And I also think that city gardeners are becoming increasingly clever and adept at greening the spaces. More and more of us are living in cities than ever before. Uh, One of the greatest ways to reduce carbon footprint is to grow more green things. And it's very, very cheering to see that people are doing that and thinking about that. And if it's down to me, you know, if if, if everyone who moved into a balcony had a few instructions and a few starter plants to get going it would be it would be quite an amazing thing but yes no um city nature is ultimately more beautiful than me I love a rolling countryside hill I do it's amazingly escapist but it doesn't have the kind of defiance that nature in the city does and there's something very beautiful in that 
Mm. Well, when I'm able to travel around a lot more freely yes. again, yeah. I'm very much looking forward to uh, exploring some of the parks and gardens that you write about in Rootbound because I did particularly enjoy the fact that you um, seem to really stay away from some of London's you know, most well-known parks mm. and gardens and you really shared some much lesser known ones that were more personal to you um, because they're, they were for the most part in your particular area of mm-hmm. London. I don't know South East London very well so I'm really looking forward to going exploring. Yeah, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> But at the end of my interviews, Alice, I always ask Teen Title guests to give a cultural recommendation. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear about something you've been enjoying lately, whether that's like a book or a TV show or a podcast. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about something. Yeah, well, I've not, I think like a lot of us, it's been a struggle to concentrate on much aside from 24-hour news at the moment. But having said that, I have found an awful lot of thinking in um, Modern Nature by Derek Jarman, uh, which isn't a new book at all. In fact, I think it was published in the early 90s. And and if um, you don't know him, Derek Jarman is, was a very polymathic person. He was an artist and a poet and a filmmaker and a writer and a gardener. But he very sadly died of AIDS um, in the early 90s and he when he got his diagnosis he left London he still kept flat there but he moved down to Dungeness which is a corner of kind of geological oddity on the Kent coast very very bleak and in my opinion beautiful place and uh, it's the UK's only desert that's how little rainfall it gets and the main appearance the main kind of attraction there is a defunct nuclear power station and he lived in one of a clutch of fishermen's villages and cottages on this extremely barren landscape and he gardened there and modern nature is a collection of his journals and they deal with sexuality and the AIDS crisis and gardening and history and he writes very beautifully and um it's a it's a book I've read before and it's a book that holds great meaning to me and I actually finished Rootbound in a fishing hut in Dungeness last May and I would go and walk to his cottage on writing breaks. So, I've seen pictures of his cottage and it looks yeah. so charming yeah um, but I, I haven't read that those journals so thank you for that recommendation. Not at all you're welcome. And what's next for you are there any upcoming book projects or anything that you'll you can share at the moment? Everything's a bit nascent at the moment I am um, it's a funny thing, like in the wake of bringing a book out, you definitely go through a kind of what I believe to be grief for the manuscript you've finished. And I think actually I'm coming out at the end of that now. And there are a couple of things which probably will end up being book shaped, perhaps. Um, and we are right at the very beginning stages of that. And I did have a lot of events, but obviously they've been cancelled. So that gives me all the more time to try and make something new. Well, that is definitely the bright side. Yes, every cloud. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And uh, I'm excited for these upcoming projects anyway when they do materialise. But if listeners would like to keep up with your news, where's best to find you online? 
Uh, I'm on Instagram for most gardening writing stuff. Um, my handle is Nauticulture. And I'm also on Twitter at Alice underscore Emily. And my day job is as features editor of penguin.co.uk. So um, you can find me writing about books and reading there. Brilliant. Well, I'll put links to all those things in the show notes for this episode too. But it's been so much fun chatting to you today, Alice. Thank, Thank you, you so much again for coming on Tea and Tattle. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Alice for her fabulous interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 134. If you've enjoyed my chat with Alice, then I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or please consider leaving a review of Tea and Tattle on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher as great reviews help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast, where I share the latest podcast news, sneak peeks of upcoming guests and things I think Tea and Tattle listeners will love. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to tune in this Easter Sunday for a Tea and Tattle Easter special in which my mum and I are sharing some of our favourite Easter reads. And then on Tuesday, I'm back with a new Tea and Tattle interview with the fabulous Lucy Worsley about her new novel, The Austin Girls. Until next time, goodbye.